Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer. I am Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And today we're speaking with Lori Goldstein, the founder of the law office of Lori A. Goldstein, LLC, which just celebrated its 10th anniversary in February. Lori has a unique experience representing both employers and employees. Prior to starting her own firm, Lori worked for two very large law firms, and she received her JD from the University of Illinois. Lori, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Ahmed. I'm so happy to be here. We're happy to have you. So you have a unique perspective. You know, NILA has a requirement. You got to be at least 51% on the plaintiff side to to be a member. You are somebody who does represent primarily individuals, but you also represent employers as well. So, so that's a little unique for our show. Tell us a little bit about your work on the management side. Work on the management side is a lot of compliance, employee handbooks and policies. We, I will draft and update and negotiate employment agreements, severance agreements, non-competes. I do management training, investigations of discrimination and harassment charges, and I defend administrative claims at the uh, state and federal agencies. Do you feel like... Do you feel like spending enough time on the plaintiff side or representing individuals makes you better at that just because you kind of understand the risks better? Or, I mean, obviously the management side, the purely management side folks certainly understand risk, but w- what unique perspective do you think this gives you? Or vice versa, uh, representing yeah. companies. How does that help you when you're representing then individuals? Uh, I think, you know, there, there's nothing better than being able to have the perspective to understand the other side to be able to tell the opposing counsel, whichever side I'm on, or the HR representative, if I'm representing the employee, I sit in your seat. I know where you're coming from. I understand what you and your client are feeling, you know, and then I, it makes me more respected. I believe I get more, we, we have a very then professional, respectful relationship. We are able to usually negotiate with common sense and pretty practically in most cases, because they don't see me as, you know, here they come from the other side. Do you think it essentially helps you to then on both sides, being able to speak the right language with the other side, being able to identify generally what matters to the employee or to the employer, just because you do both work? Yes, definitely. Because again, if I'm on the employee side, I can, Tell the employer that I understand what the employer's concerns might be, but I'm also and I'm also able to explain to my client and give them a sense of reality and, you know, manage expectations with the employees as to what is reasonable to be able to expect in a settlement, in a negotiation, in a case. And there are employers that sometimes don't want to set a precedent and things like that. And so I explained to the employees that here's how employers sometimes do this, sometimes take it or leave it. Here's your severance agreement. We're not making any changes. Others will be more flexible. So as you know, every employer, every decision maker, every situation is different. Well, you gave us a good list of stuff you do with companies. One thing you, you probably do, but you didn't mention is helping them with COVID policies. Can you walk us through kind of what you've been doing the last year in terms of return to either both 
work from home and then return to the office. Right. You're right. It's actually been several different phases, not only in the government, but in in our advice based on what the changes have been in the numbers and the laws. So I, I think since early March of last year, I started helping employers navigate this and sending out bulletins and reading all the CDC guidelines and EEOC, et cetera. And it's been a moving target. So for those, I mean, last year it was whether we furlough or put people on paid leave or, or unpaid leave, or do we fire people and let them go on unemployment. For those that started returning to work, which was late spring of last year, some of them did, the ones that weren't already essential. We were pretty optimistic and naive, I think, at that time. We figured this is almost done. And then the planned, you know, so we had return to work policies with protocols and masks and barriers because there were no vaccines yet. Then those, the numbers changed again and people were basically remote, a lot of hybrid. And so this year, most companies planned to go back on after July 4th. And a lot of them did. Some of them are now planning to go back after Labor Day, although I think they are now rethinking that. So I've done various return to work policies, depending on what the guidelines and protocols are. So it's been a, a moving target. I guess you kind of already, you preemptively answered my question, which is the guidance you were already going to be looking at. I wonder if now people are kicking that back even further with the new Delta variant coming out and, and what have you. Right. We're seeing it, you know, we're seeing it in, in the government and we're seeing it in a lot of the big companies now, a lot of different reaction, more strong reactions in terms of mandated vaccines, at least. So that was going to be my next question is, are you... Uh, if you're comfortable, how are you counseling employers when they ask you the question, can I require my employees to get vaccinated? Oh, very good question. It's a big question, a very hot topic right now. Really? I had no idea. Right, right. You <laughs> wouldn't know it. I'm seeing it on LinkedIn and surveys everywhere and uh, and all over the news, of course. So before the last couple of weeks, most companies were encouraging or incentivizing vaccines, but not going as far as mandating. A lot of them were concerned with, well, mandating if somebody were to get uh, have a long-term effect or an adverse reaction from a mandated vaccine, a company could be liable. There are EEOC reasonable accommodation requirements if somebody has a disability or for a religious reason can't get a vaccine. So it's complicated to mandate as opposed to just encourage. Then there's logistics if you're providing them on site. Those are other complications. However, in the last couple of weeks, we are now seeing the big companies very broadly publicly announcing everybody that wants to come into the office must be vaccinated. So they are not no longer afraid to mandate. And I'm starting to counsel my employers to do the same thing. Most of my company's clients or employees are already vaccinated, but not all. And it's a tough one. You have good employees that you don't want to lose, that you put it in, you know, made an investment in, but you need to operate. So it's it's a tough one. And you need to operate safely and keep everybody healthy and safe. So how do you do that if it's a job that can't be done remotely? When you may have just answered my question, which was going to be, what caused the shift between companies initially encouraging the vaccine to now mandating the vaccine? 
I'm sure it was this the Delta variant and these the recent findings that, although I don't think they're that recent, that people that are fully vaccinated can still contract. It's a lot easier to contract the Delta. It's a lot more contagious. And people who are vaccinated can pass that on. And there are these breakthrough infections, again, that fully vaccinated people can have. So because of that risk, the more people that can be vaccinated, obviously, the fewer people are around to have the disease and pass it around. So I think that's the reason that if we cannot kick this disease until almost everybody is vaccinated. Are companies a little bit more maybe confident, too, from a legal standpoint about being able to mandate vaccines now? And we're recording this late July of 2021, as opposed to February, March of 2021. That's a good question. I don't believe there's been any legis- any uh, case law, any cases yet on this. And I know a lot of companies were concerned that they would get sued for forcing somebody for discrimination if you didn't get one. I think because of what the big companies are doing, because the EEOC says, yes, you can do it subject to these exceptions, they are feeling more confident that this is the right thing to do. And throughout this whole pandemic, so many things have been, we've never done this before. We're doing our best, best practices. We're looking at what our colleagues are doing and hoping for the best. And if it doesn't work, then we change that. So. Well, and, and also I think the other thing about the mandatory vaccines and please either you correct me if I, if you disagree, but you know, you do have those reasonable accommodation or religious accommodation options for those who can't, right? So even if you make everybody do it, it's not as though those people are going to be automatically fired the minute they say no. There are ways to work around it for those people, right? Because if you do have that medical reason why you can't, the employer, I'm assuming, at least the people you're advising, are not going to just straight off fire those people. They're going to engage in the interactive process with them, and there may be a workaround for those individuals, Right. In fact, you know, depending on their duties and and that person and their condition, yes, a reasonable accommodation is not to say, sorry, we have to fire you. (laughs) Reasonable accommodations could be anything from keep working remotely or work part time remotely or we're going to give you a private office and we're going to put up all these barriers and we're going to make everybody wear masks or whenever you're in a meeting, you know, whatever makes you comfortable. I'm going through that now with a client that has had somebody working from home since March of 2020 and the company reopened in July and it's an on-site position, a receptionist position that is front facing. And the doctor says she has immuno, you know, she's immunocompromised and he won't let her out of the house. And I believe, you know, there that's, she's not protected because, and there's a no definite time that she can come back. So she's really not covered by ADA as a qualified individual. These really wouldn't be considered reasonable accommodations to go more than 16 months of work from home on an on-site job. And it's, and, and I feel for the individuals because their conditions haven't changed. They're still, you know, they have the same medical conditions and it's still, or even more of a risk now to get COVID. But you're between a rock and a hard place and companies have to operate their businesses and move forward. And individuals may have to find other types of jobs. I mean, there are a lot of remote jobs out there. Well, so I think, I think that's one of been, been one of the hard things about the pandemic, right? Is a lot of medical conditions that employers would never have had to even know somebody had like a lot of this stuff is stuff that 
pre-COVID, nobody would have cared about her. It would have just never, you had Marfan syndrome, you had bad asthma, you had childhood respiratory issues that never went away, heart condition, whatever. You take your medication, you do what you got to do to keep yourself healthy, but it doesn't impact your job. Now, your employer, not only does it impact your job, your employer now has to be intimately involved with your medical life because the absence of that information could lead to somebody dying. Right. Exactly. And, and that's why the, the employer needs to know and deal with it. And obviously that comes with a lot of obligations for confidentiality and need to know and not asking too much and, you know, talking to your attorneys about what can we ask and what can we do. And because the whole ADA reasonable accommodation process is not an easy process. You alluded to this earlier too. You know, there's no blueprint for this. There is no playbook about what to do. So how do you figure all of this out on the fly when everything is pretty much changing on a week-by-week basis? To tell you the truth, I talk to colleagues who are other employment lawyers, some in, other, in big firms, and ask them what they're doing. I read, I, I do my own client bulletins, but I'm also reading all the other law firm client bulletins to see what they're doing. I have connections with uh, several HR firms, so I read what they're sending to their companies. I read their sample policies. I draft my own, and but you can't do it on your own. Uh, a solo person cannot just, you know, read what you see in the in the in the news or in the law books or in CDC guidelines and say, do it this way. There is no 100% right way, but we have to talk to our colleagues. And I think our industry is great about that. Very collegial. Do you feel like maybe being on, you know, we talked about one of the advantages to you having, to you having clients on both the management and the employee side. I think this issue in particular to me on the outside would make you especially well suited for this time because you on the one hand represent individuals who are impacted by this and on the other you see the you know behind you you can see the man behind the curtain right like you know what they're trying to do to keep things moving i I think whether from an empathy perspective or just kind of a, a logically thinking through the situation you maybe more than most are better situated for this yeah, I have a real passion for working with individuals and and I and I am very empathetic. So, you know, in my heart, I feel for the for the individual, whether I'm representing the employer or the individual, because, again, these are tough situations and we haven't been there before. And because of that, sometimes I'm able to reason with an employer or an employer's attorney or HR to give my client more time, be more flexible, be creative. I'm always trying to come up with creative ways for my employers to allow the an employee to keep working or accommodate them. And I think that's what you have to do is convince them to think out of the box and don't, you know, we don't, we've never done it this way. We don't do it this way. You can't think that way. You have to be able to be creative and, and be open-minded and be empathetic. And that's what we've been counseling the clients since this started, how, but many of them, you know, have gotten frustrated and <laughs> impatient and wanting to move forward. So it's tough. Well, to continue on the theme of your perspective, being on both sides of the aisle, you mentioned earlier, too, you hope on both sides with severance agreements and employment agreements. What are differences in how employers and employees kind of approach those types of negotiations? Um, That's a great question also. There's no standard approach among employers or even individuals 
as I said, every employer, every decision maker has their own philosophy, their own approach. Some companies are very principled and adamant that they're right and they don't want to set a precedent that we settle with people. And that's fine, but litigation is risky. It's expensive, you know, time consuming. And hopefully most of these companies have EPLI insurance, employment practices, liability insurance. And the cases are very fact specific. And he said, she said, so I have to tell whoever I'm representing litigation is such a, you know, you, you cannot guarantee, you can't predict. It's so much better to have closure to move forward and put this behind you. So, and it's not easy to settle, but, or it's not easy to always agree to negotiate. But so I do try to work with employers to, again, be creative and be flexible and open-minded with severance agreements. What what about on the front end in terms of negotiating an employment agreement? Do you find there's a little bit more flexibility there or are companies still concerned about not setting a precedent on terms or narrowing a non-compete. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I would say that, well, one of the terms they're least likely to negotiate is at will. When a company, most companies want most of their employees to be at will and not a term employee with, you know, for cause termination, et cetera. So sometimes if it's an executive, that's a different thing. So that one is a hard one. You know, salary benefits, those are things that can be negotiated. But again, if there's a bonus plan, it's the plan. This is what everybody gets. Most of the benefits are standard. Sometimes they'll agree to give somebody more vacation or something different because of of their role. Non-competes, restrictive covenants, again, those are pretty standard and companies are pretty pretty strong about keeping that language. Sometimes we will make some changes, little tweaks here and there that make the other side feel better, that don't change things that much, but we're not going to, you know, change a two-year non-compete to one year, or, and I see that on the other side, they, they're not going to reduce time most of the time or waive things. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer. I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois in the show. Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share. And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set. So is a lot of what you do then, if you're working with an employee on the front end, a lot of it, is it just making sure they even understand their obligations? You know, you may have you know, John Doe you're working with may have a two-year non-compete. And I think a lot of folks maybe don't understand what that means, or they think they have guaranteed severance, or they think their bonus plan means ABC. So is that a lot of what you end up doing then on the front end? Yes. Sometimes people will come to me, you know, while they're perhaps looking for another job. Sometimes they've been offered another position already, and they have a non-compete or a restrictive covenant agreement that they just assumed wasn't enforceable because these aren't enforceable, aren't they? That's what people think. And then I have to set them straight and explain what the law is and that it depends on, you know, when this was signed, what state you signed it in, where you perform the employment, where, what state law will be enforced. But, you know, there are little wrinkles to different state laws. Illinois is one of them. And so there are a lot of employees and employers that don't know, for example, that if it's an at-will employee and, you don't give them any additional consideration. You can't enforce the non-compete or, or non-solicit for 
two years, and that's going to be statutory soon. Yeah. And there's a lot that don't understand that. So the first thing I'll ask is, when did you sign this? Oh, six months ago. What did they give you? Nothing. And then it's like, then it's not enforceable. Well, and the, the conversation you sometimes have with employers about the cost, that's a conversation I think you have to have too as employees where you may have a, a non-compete that's not enforceable, but what? how do you find out? Exactly. And, and I tell them, you know, you they can bring you and your new employer or your co- prospective employer in on a TRO. It could be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend and you might win but you've spent all that money. And most of the time your new employer is not taking on that defense for you. Sometimes they do, but you're on your own. So I have the interesting situations are when I've negotiated with the new employer, the old employer, and and I'm representing the, the employee and we're able to sometimes the new employer will buy out the, the old employer. Sometimes they'll just agree between them. We'll make sure we keep this person away from this type of work or these types of clients. So again, if you can be creative and come up with a practical approach, then everybody's happy. Yeah. I love the situations where you're helping someone exit and onboard. And there's so many different permutations about how to do that, but those are definitely the situations I enjoy the most. Right. And, and, you know, what I learn and what clients have unfortunately learned sometimes after they've had an employment agreement that I wasn't involved in, which includes, for example, a relocation package um, or a signing bonus, and then things don't work out. And then they have to move back home or now they have to pay up this huge signing bonus. And if they had only had legal counsel at the time they signed the employment agreement, you know, then they realize, or sometimes it comes at the severance agreement time. Sometimes you can negotiate some of those things then. So do you find that, is it common for you to have people come back to you in that scenario where they came to you on the front end, you made a recommendation, they kind of took a look at the price tag and figured, you know what, I'll just risk it or I'll do it myself. I don't want to pay the ounce of prevention, so to speak. And then by the time you find them, it's like, well, now the pound of cure, you know, costs three times what it could have if you just talked to me on the front end? Uh, I don't think that's happened with anyone I've represented. They've always just usually done it on their own and didn't even consult with an attorney. So it's, it's usually they're coming to me after. Sometimes they've had a different attorney or they've just, you know, they have a few attorneys telling them, giving them advice on this contract and to see whose advice they like best, I guess. <laughs> and for, who, gives no. them, who gives them the answer they want. And right. They and for want. cheapest. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, and for our non-attorney listeners, a temporary restraining order or TRO is essentially a situation where you take a case that might normally take two to seven years and you truncate that to three months to a year, maybe, maybe six months, actually. So outside of me, I've never met anyone who likes those types. Um, <laughs> our, our mutual friend, Rich, might be the only one. Yeah, there's like three of us who like these types of cases. And I know clients and new employers do not. So it's definitely worth the investment. You know, one other thing I found interesting, you've had a lot of experience doing is just working in the agency process with the EEO or the Department of Human Rights on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And so what's a common mistake you've noticed because you've represented employers that employees are often making during the agency process? During the agency process, or even if we aren't at the agency process, I think one of the biggest mistakes is that employees believe that things that are, that the situation that occurred, which could be very unfair and very unprofessional and should not 
have happened. They are convinced that it's illegal, even though there are no legal claims that I find, or they're, they're convinced that the employee could not, they could not possibly be at fault. It, it's always the other side. It's the employer that it wasn't me. And they don't understand the wide discretion that employers have with at-will employment. So that's a common mistake. And then I guess at the agency process itself, what they have to understand is I'm always encouraging mediation and settlement. And that means that you're not going to get everything you might get if you were to win, go all the way to jury trial and get something in three years. So what I have to explain is, you know, manage expectations, be aware of how the positives of having closure and being able to move forward and go to a better job or a better work environment and put this behind you and take less, you know, and don't have the risk of what might happen if you take this all the way through trial. So I have to convince them to kind of take the dollar signs out of their eyes and reduce them. Yeah. When I, and I think the time too, there's a huge advantage to resolving a situation during the charge process or before filing a lawsuit versus going all the way to a jury, which now with, with COVID, who knows when you're going to get a jury trial. Right, exactly. And I'm, I'm all often encouraging, depending on the, the timing of when I, a client comes to me, I encourage them to hold off on filing any formal charge because it changes the position of the employer. All of a sudden, you know, we're, we're not advocates. I mean, we're, we're antagonists now and now it's public and now they have to respond. And so if we get to a point, if we try to negotiate first and that doesn't work or they ignore the, the client or it's too late, then we get in fast and file a claim. And then I still recommend mediation because I don't think it's good for employees' emotions and and for the companies, other than in you know certain important cases, I guess. Anything else? If is there another takeaway on either side that you would give to you know management side folks or just individuals about that process that we haven't already covered? Well, I think that for the management side, they also have to be realistic and understand that. Somebody filed this claim because they were hurt and there was emotion and something was done that they felt wasn't right. And most likely there were things that weren't right, whether they were were illegal or not is, is another question. But I think companies have to understand that you cannot predict what a jury will do. So as much as the company believes that they were right and all of their witnesses are going to support that and nobody's going to believe the plaintiff. That's not the case. And it's really most of the time not worth going all the way, even to prove it and win because it's so expensive and inconvenient for your staff that are witnesses, et cetera. So I think I want people to be practical and realistic and manage expectations. They, as they say, a good settlement is one in which nobody is happy because everybody has had to compromise. And that's what I tell all of the clients and they, they start to get it. Judge Anderson, uh, Judge Wayne Anderson used to say that all the time that, you know, he was always, he always knew he did his job right when everybody left his chambers <laughs> angrier than when they got there on both sides. So <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. 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 And I think you hit the nail on the coffin there. There is a monetary cost, even regardless of whether or not you have insurance, there's going to be some monetary cost, and it's not going to be a low amount of money 
to get through summary judgment. You know, each individual court filing is several thousands of dollars. But then the non-monetary cost people, I think, sometimes underestimate, which is the distraction to the business, having to do depositions, preparing, having to talk to someone like me on the phone on a regular basis. Like no <laughs> one wants to do that. Right. So th- there's an incentive, I think, for both sides to try to be pragmatic. I agree. I agree. Lawyers can complicate things. And sometimes it's just easier to, you know, to find a a happy medium and make it go away. Ahmed, it's your favorite time. It is. So we like to end our episodes with something positive, a shout out of the week. And it can be a book, a movie, um, an action figure hero, anything you want it to be. So who is your shout out of the week? We've had pets, we've had children, we've had movies and books, we've had political or social justice causes, we've had, I I mean, it is literally anything that you think is positive that you would like to plug, anything, any person, any anything. And we did spring this on you, it was meant to be an ambush. You did. (laughs) It's intentional. (laughs) You did, let's see. I'm going to say my daughter who wears many hats, but one of the things she does is she's a volunteer for a mental health hotline, depression and suicide hotline. She's 25. And, you know, she's always telling us the stories of without names, some of the situations. And she sent us the other day of kudos that the company had sent to her from one of these people that basically said, you you can't imagine what these conversations do for me. You saved my life. You've changed my life. And, you know, for me to know that one of my children is changing lives and saving lives, and my other daughter is becoming a neuropsychologist. So I'm very proud of both. It sounds That's like awesome. you have good reason to be in, especially in this time with everybody so stressed and isolated. I suspect their volume is up and it sounds like she's really doing yeoman's work. Um, you know, That's heavy work to be doing right now. Yeah. It is. It is. And, and that, that business is booming, which is I'm so happy about because, I mean, there, we need the access. The remote mental health has been great. I have several clients who are therapists who are now starting their own practices or adding people to their practices. You can't get appointments. It's so busy. So I'm glad the country is recognizing it. The world is recognizing it and taking away the stigma of mental health issues. So that's awesome. Any uh, Lori, anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, I'm doing a lot of sexual harassment training these days, believe it or not. Um, mostly remote, but I'm starting to do some live ones. And as we know, employers are required to do that annually in Illinois. And I love to present and blog on workplace issues. So if anybody's interested, organizations looking for that, I would love to help. Lori, if people want to find you, how can they do that? They can find me at my email address, which is laurie.a.goldstein at gmail.com. My website is laurigoldsteinlaw.com. And my phone number, 847-624-6640. All right. We'll make sure that all finds its way into the show notes. Lori, thank you for coming on and chatting with us today. This was fun. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.